1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Richard Hammond. He is a lecturer in war studies at the University of Brunel, and today we are discussing his book, Strangling the Axis: The Fight for Control of the Mediterranean During the Second World War, published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome, Dr. Hammond.
1: Hi. Thank you very much for having me on.
0: Doctor, why did you uh, write this book?
1: Um, so I came to to write this because uh, I've I've always been interested in in the period of the Second World War and and the preceding and following periods. Um, And increasingly, as as I sort of read into it, I got interested um, in the kind of broadly defined Mediterranean region um, over the course of the war for a variety of reasons. Initially, through reading um, about the war in North Africa, although um, increasingly, as I went on sort of reading into these things, um, becoming more and more aware, um, and this is a fundamental aspect of the book, Uh, about the the really interconnected nature of all these different parts that make up the the Mediterranean theatre broadly defined, which I I go into to discuss in the first chapter of the book, um, uh, what that theatre is uh, and also how that fits within the global context of the war, because, of course, it is very much uh, a global conflict um, in which each region has its within its sort of itself uh, lots of different connecting aspects which then also connect all these other theatres and lots of questions for kind of uh, strategy makers and, and these sorts of things and the impacts that events have in some places on on uh, places elsewhere. So that, that really got, got me into sort of as I gradually expanded things, I was looking at terms of reading interest into uh, the Mediterranean region. And increasingly, it became clear to me that um, events, Uh, that happen around there whether that's in in North Africa or in the Middle East or in other islands in the Aegean or in the Western Mediterranean or or what have you are all fundamentally linked and dependent on uh, in a way that hadn't really been covered fully before on these kind of networks of supply across the sea so therefore I really wanted to to delve into that in depth and that's what I do in the book
0: and uh, if you could in I suppose somewhat cogent fashion what would be what would you say is the thesis of your book and how it differentiates uh, from the existing literature on the subject?
1: So the, there are two main conclusions uh, to the book. Um, so the two main strands of them are one kind of links into, in a sort of a more smaller sense, links into the bigger second conclusion. Now, the first of those, the smaller one, is that... Um, uh that uh, kind of things like the war in, in North Africa are fundamentally kind of um, ultimately crucially decided by what happens at sea and in the interdiction of, of access shipping, which has been covered before. But it's a big debate between people who think it is the case, those who very actively think it is not the case, those who have slightly different perspectives. Um, but also that that in itself is just one constituent of this larger way of broader way of looking uh, at the Mediterranean region, which is everything is connected by this Axis shipping that actually successful, ultimately successful allied attempts to interdict sufficient quantities of that shipping that crisscrosses the Mediterranean, holds everything together for the Axis powers, the European Axis powers. the ability to retreat that kind of shipping and the overall shipping losses means their ability, the accessibility ability to hold on to any kind of position across the Mediterranean, outside of parts of the Italian peninsula, um, are just fundamentally undermined. And that hasn't been looked at before, the way that all these things fit together. And that really is new.
0: And what type of source material do you employ in the book, which is um, uh, unusual or has not been utilized previously?
1: There's a big range of, of source material in the book. Obviously, I, I, I draw on and, and position it within the vast um, kind of secondary literature that exists. But in terms of the primary sources, uh, it, it's a real multinational mix of things. So there's lots of of British source material in there, as Britain is for most of arguably all of the war, the leading Axis power in the Mediterranean, whereas such, excuse me, the leading allied power in the Mediterranean, uh, whereas Obviously, um, in the other parts of the kind of uh, European theatre, um, and certainly in the Pacific and things, it, it's the United States that takes the lead. Um, and uh, also, alongside that, large quantities of, of, of British material coming from um, relevant institutional records, uh, some of the armed forces and of the of the, the cabinet. Uh, and so forth held at the National Archives, but also uh, a variety of sets of private papers from archives across the UK and several other things as well. Uh, there's also some some American primary source material in there. Um, and then there's a variety of, of German and especially Italian source material in there. Um, the uh, German material all comes from, oh, with the exception of one thing that was very kindly sort of lent to me from um the Bundesarchiv, um, uh, from someone who'd done research there, Um, that generally comes from captured material available in the UK and USA. Uh, The Italian material comes from the UK and the USA and that captured material and also from Italian archives. Um, And particularly the Italian material has been heavily underutilised in English language works on the Mediterranean. uh, And that helps add new perspectives. Also, uh, quite a bit of the um, uh, German material as well. So um, the papers of of people like uh, Karl Kaufmann feature heavily in the second half of the book uh, because he is um, uh, a sort of a a German official effectively in charge of their shipping resources. So he becomes very important, particularly in the second half of the book.
0: Uh, What place did the Mediterranean have in British grand strategy in the period immediately prior to the Second World War?
1: Uh, prior to the war um well I mean for a long time prior to the second world war the mediterranean is crucial in sort of britain's empire and uh, earlier on prior to the empire uh, or, or sort of in the early stages of the empire is crucial to britain's sort of aims for becoming a great power and an imperial power um uh, and increasingly over time, gaining positions in there, starting with things like Gibraltar, later going on to include places like like Malta and parts of the Middle East and so forth. Um, that not only gets Britain access to important trade routes and things like that, but also is vitally important for imperial defence for Britain, um, particularly after the creation of the Suez Canal, something actually Britain initially opposes at the time it's being proposed. But then they sort of find a way to, to gain can, significant levels of control over it um, that really cuts the shipping time um, to the Indian Ocean and Far East and so forth and key uh, key sort of parts of the empire like India, um, Salon, now Sri Lanka um, and, and, and also the dominions of Australia and New Zealand. Um, and that allows them the ability not only to speed trade globally but in terms of imperial defense they can shift forces around the world very, very quickly, much more quickly than they'd been able to when they had to go around down the south of the, the, the kind of the Cape of Africa over a much longer route. So that allows them to act globally even more easily during major wars. Um, and so they're able to do that during, say, the First World War. Um, and that's something that they're keen to hold on to um, as they approach. The likelihood of the Second World War seems sort of quite likely, and perhaps also it's Italy's involvement in it. Um, they want to hold on to that, that position uh, because they see themselves as a power that acts, acts globally, uh, will often take peripheral approaches uh, in wartime, which, of course, then during the Second World War leads to a bit of a major strategic dispute, particularly with the Americans. Um, uh, they see themselves as a power that can utilise kind of following the path of least resistance or uh, utilising their major naval power around the world. Uh, blockading other powers, these sorts of things. So it holds a really important role uh, for Britain in a way that it it doesn't do so in terms of prosecution of the war in the minds maybe so much of, say, the Americans or the Soviet Union.
0: You state that the UK had two different strategies for defeating Italy in the war. What were they and why was one chosen rather than the other?
1: Yes, yeah, so it's a good question. There's a really interesting debate, which I go into in the, in the first chapter, uh, in the pre-war years about if, if war with Italy is to happen, how do we knock them out? Um, Germany is viewed increasingly as you get later into the 30s as the primary potential enemy, the ultimate enemy, as the phrase goes. There are, of course, also concerns over Japan and Italy, but particularly from 1935, There are real concerns over Italy after the Abyssinian crisis and the fact that actually they come moderately close to to act of hostilities at that time. Um, And that's when kind of war planning really begins against Italy. And effectively. Kind of those involved with British war planning and those who comment on this, whether they are military staffs, heads of service, military services or whether they're politicians, they tend to fall into one of these two camps that you mentioned. Uh, so I call them in the book uh, the Knockout Blow School, the kind of two schools of thoughts, Knockout Blow School and the Strangulation School. Um, and the Knockout Blow School, uh, as as the name implies, suggests that they should act quickly, perhaps even preemptively, uh, to knock Italy out of the war as quickly as possible via a series of, of major actions which involve, trying to decisively defeat the Italian Navy as quickly as possible at sea uh, or at the very least blockade them in port, bombard Italy heavily from from the sea after achieving that and also to bomb them heavily from the air uh, and to threaten invasion. Uh, and then hopefully that will be enough to um, force their collapse and so they won't be able to stay in the war and force them to come to the negotiating table and do so quickly. The strangulation school is the reverse. Um, it's the idea that you can block Italy, sort of blockade it um, by uh, utilising Britain's control of the exits and entrances to the Mediterranean, the Straits of Gibraltar and, and the Suez Canal, um, and that you can, uh, <clears throat> in order to uh, cut off Italy's imports, and Italy is absolutely dependent on seaborne imports, much like Britain, but of course it's kind of trapped, as the phrase goes for Italian war plans at the time, as a, as a prisoner in the Mediterranean, Um, and that then you can continue to gradually attrit them out of the war or strangle them out of the war. That might be cutting off their their intra mediterranean shipping. It might be bombing them, but but with the idea that that's a gradual process rather than a knockout blow um, and sort of gradually starving them out of any conflict. Um, And really in the pre-war period, that debate is never resolved. It's argued over in sort of 35, 36, at the time of the Brazilian crisis. The argument reappears a bit later in the 30s. And it's never really fully resolved. Um, but ultimately what happens during the Second World War is very much closer to the strangulation school, of course, than, than any kind of knockout blow. And that's maybe more, um, a product of circumstance more than anything else, which is that when Italy does enter the war in June 1940, Britain's in a very, very difficult position and is in no position to really enact a knockout blow against Britain, particularly because some of the ideas that are crucial to uh, enacting a knockout blow are dependent on France. And France is, when Italy enters the war, just about to sign an armistice, not long later, less than two weeks later, so you can't utilise France as an ally against Italy. You can't base your air forces in, in southern Italy to bomb the key uh, Italian industrial centres in the northwest. Uh, so really, and of course, then also having lost France as an ally, you're you're more stretched over the world. Uh, you have to cover all those things that they were covering. So um, greater effort to cover other parts of the Mediterranean some parts of the Far East. Um, you're struggling against Germany. It's like we've got you trapped back in Britain, and it's threatening potential invasion. Um, so a knockout blow is just not realistic at that point in time, if, if it ever even had been. So they're kind of forced into it by circumstance more than anything else.
0: At the time of Italy's uh, entry into the war, what was the Italian Navy's and Air Force's strategic objectives vis-à-vis the UK?
1: Um, that's a good question. I mean, their, their strategic objectives are maybe not always all that clear. Um, when when Italy enters the war, they do so, unsurprisingly, as, as, a, as an authoritarian head of state, at the behest of, of Benito Mussolini. Um, fairly uniformly, the heads of the Italian armed forces don't really want to enter the war because they don't think they're ready for entering war against, um, you know, a major industrialized modern power like Britain. Even if France is getting knocked out of war, they still have concerns over this. So they don't necessarily form grandiose strategic plans, whereas Mussolini perhaps rather does kind of form a grandiose idea But you can argue it's not very strategically coherent. So lots of ideas about what to do in the Mediterranean, but also famously um, sort of disparate efforts, like sending a handful of submarines to the Atlantic, small air components to go and help in the Battle of Britain, the bombing of Britain, um, and also within the broadly defined Mediterranean, declaring war on Greece and invading them, attacking them into Egypt and and so forth. Uh, Efforts in the Red Sea area is quite quite diffuse. The Italian Navy and Air Force, who um, incidentally don't get on especially well most of the time, most of the officials and, and senior officers from each of them um, have quite serious rivalries and competition over resources. Um, well, for the Navy, they have more operational than strategic objectives um, that mostly focus around securing as much as possible sea lines of communication um, to be able to get shipping and, and 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 key kind of supplies and things to to Libya as an Italian colony in North Africa um, and to other positions uh, in East Africa uh, and also to sort of key islands like, you know, Sardinia and things like this. And it's just to try and hold on to the central Mediterranean area, the kind of Sicilian Channel kind of region. Um, And it's a largely defensive idea. Generally, they enter the war with fairly clear orders to their kind of, Respective fleet commanders that they shouldn't engage the Royal Navy unless they're in a clear sort of position of demonstrable superiority because they, despite the fact that France is not going to be in the war for much longer, are still outnumbered um, by the Royal Navy and they expect accurately that they are probably also sort of technically behind the Royal Navy as well. Um, So they are concerned that actively, aggressively going and seeking battle with them would be, um uh detrimental and might even contribute to their own receiving their own knockout blow almost uh so they have much more defensive aims uh and as so far as they are offensive it's things like use more kind of uh what they call the mezzi insidiosi insidious methods of things like special forces um and submarines and maybe aircraft there are problems with relations with the italian air force to um sort of attack um British forces at sea and this kind of stuff. The Air Force, um, they're focused around things like the subjugation of Malta operationally and the bombing of that, supporting the army um, in North Africa. Um, They do like the idea to some extent, or certainly some within the Italian Air Force, like the idea of strategic bombing, um, but they haven't really yet got... um, a significant heavy bomber force. They've got a relatively small air force still, and the, the kind of bombers they have are generally medium bombers and this kind of stuff. So they don't really think that's realistically possible. So generally for them, it's, it's more operational objectives as well. They don't tend to have huge kind of strategic objectives. Um, they focus more on a kind of on that operational level more than anything else, I would suggest.
0: What were British anti-shipping capability or capabilities at the outset of the war?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, when the when the war starts uh, for Britain, uh, which the war against Germany for, for Britain, of course, is, is starting in September 1939. Um, their anti-shipping capabilities are, are pretty, pretty limited. Um, they have not really uh, developed. Uh, an effective kind of maritime air component over the course of the interwar years for a variety of reasons. Uh, The primary two of which, which are heavily interlinked, are a lack of resources, kind of particularly economic strife that's happening in this period means it's kind of falls by the wayside and also linked with this and the competition over resources. Um, It's a domain that that kind of spans the Royal Navy and Royal Air Force. And there's lots and lots of... um, kind of fractiousness in the relations between those two services. Um, uh, the, the Royal Air Force famously doesn't want to have any naval control of any form of air power. They think it should all be centralized on the Royal Air Force. The Royal Navy, I mean, in the early stages of the interwar years, tries to argue the RAF shouldn't exist. Uh, so the, the relations aren't great. So it means when they get to the start of the Second World War, they don't have good quality maritime aircraft. Um, Maritime aviation is is doctrinally light. They haven't looked into kind of the the codification of different ideas and and doctrine. Uh, They have poor quality aircraft and um, uh, weaponry. Things like uh, the Avro Anson is is RAF Coastal Commands, the the, the land-based maritime sort of coastal air power organisation in the UK. Uh, the Avro Lancaster is its main aircraft. and It doesn't have the, endu- the endurance to reach uh, from the UK, Norway and back effectively. So they're very short range. They have weapons like the, the anti-submarine bomb, which, when the war starts, proves to be more dangerous to the aircraft, dropping it to the, the, the U-boat itself that's being attacked. So they have to sort of really uh, ramp up their efforts over the course of the war, which they do to improve the quality of maritime aviation. And that, that's that kind of operational learning comes up a lot over the course of the book. Um, they have a submarine arm, um, which is in the process of getting new and, and more modernised submarines. So when they, they start the war in the Mediterranean in June 1940, they're still having to use older classes of submarine, the OP and R classes, which proved to be highly unsuccessful, were very mechanically unreliable a lot of the time, particularly the older ones. Um, they prove to be fairly easy to spot. Um, for things like um, Italian aircraft or later German aircraft compared to what sort of later classes of submarine that come in. They're quite noisy. Uh, They're quite large for somewhere like the Mediterranean as well. Uh, They later bring in better sort of more appropriate classes of submarine TS and U classes of submarine that are better in that regard. Um, So generally it's only really the kind of the surface forces that don't change as much um, in terms of their role in anti-shipping operations. So they're, they're kind of a bit behind the ball in many ways in terms of anti-shipping capability at the start of the war with Britain. They're certainly behind, say, uh, the Japanese equivalent, um, for instance. And um, it's something they really have to develop over the, over the course of the war.
0: What were the results of the... Brit- Why? I'm sorry. Why were the results of the British anti-shipping campaign operations in the Mediterranean so meagre in 1940?
1: Well, kind of linked to uh, um, what I said in in response to your previous question, um, they have uh, sort of lower quality stuff available to them. There's a paucity of it as well. So when... um, Italy declares war. Britain doesn't have that much in the Mediterranean because logically uh, after the failure of the Battle of France um, and, you know, France is in the process of being defeated now in, in kind of the centre and, and south of France in June 1940 and then signing the armistice. Britain's left kind of being concerned about the possibility of invasion um, and also air attack on the UK. They're concentrating a lot of their forces there. They still also have to keep components east of Suez because they don't know what Japan is going to do. Is Japan going to enter the war to take advantage of, of, of sort of France and Britain's woes? Um, so they don't have as many forces in the Mediterranean. And then on top of that, they have to gradually build that over time, um, which in 1940, they're struggling, don't have uh, any major allies outside of, you know, other sort of dominion nations of part of the Empire Commonwealth. Um They have to gradually build that over time. And then they've got the problem of a lot of this is sort of older stuff that isn't as high quality and isn't as specialised towards these things. And they lack a lot of the important technical developments at this stage that are going to come later, like key radar developments, things like air-to-surface vessel radar, um, key developments in intelligence, all these sorts of things that are going to make the campaign more effective. Those come later. In 1940, there's not that much stuff. And it's not as good as what's coming later either. Um, so they they struggle a lot. Um, they make the they most logically because they don't have as much stuff, fewer efforts, but also they're more costly, particularly submarines, um, the heaviest losses to British submarines in the Mediterranean. Some of the worst ones come in 1940 to these older classes of submarine.
0: Why did the fall of Greece in the spring of 1941 lead to a re-emphasis on anti-shipping operations by the British in the Mediterranean?
1: Um, so, yeah, after um, the, the kind of the Greek debacle, as it becomes almost like two Greek debacles, the initial um, Italian invasion doesn't go that well, and then ultimately after a reinvigorated Italian effort, and particularly the German intervention, then goes very, very badly after the British intervention, and ultimately a very, very costly withdrawal from Crete. So, um, they see one. I suppose the um, the effectiveness of Axis air power in interdicting some of those evacuation efforts and heavy losses to the Royal Navy and, and related other shipping that takes part in that evacuation demonstrates just how effective it can be. Uh, but also the focus on increasing efforts against Axis supply lines at sea um, has come before uh, the the fall of Greece. Um, it's something that they've identified pre-war. They're aware pre-war, as I talked about the different schools of of thought about how to to combat Italy pre-war. They're aware that a big vulnerability is their need and their reliance on this seaborne seaborne supply and on shipping. Um, So really what they're doing is just then building up forces um, and, and sort of increasing efforts to do that. Now, the Greek campaign, particularly the Greece, of of, of and, then, and particularly the evacuation of Crete, first of all, of mainland Greece and then particularly the evacuation of Crete and the losses that come, put a bit of a kibosh for a time on those increased efforts because it forces the withdrawal of surface forces uh, and air cover and these sorts of things to, to undertake these other efforts, like the evacuation and support for the campaign earlier, prior to that. Uh, but really, it's an ongoing effort. Um, after 1940 to kind of increase the forces available and to, uh, to conduct this campaign and to focus on it more. And that's because it's focusing on this vulnerability they've identified identified for a long time. And um, um, now when you get into 1941, the seeming threat of invasion is much, much lower. Um, you know, the, uh, the, the bombing is, is kind of decreasing of Britain. Um the Luftwaffe hasn't managed to sort of knock out um the air defence of Britain. Um the fleet itself largely manages the Royal Navy home fleet stays intact and they're able to kind of then siphon off a lot of these forces to the Mediterranean. And it kind of becomes clear as well, in terms of a, a ground strategy for Britain, that the Mediterranean is where they can conduct defensive operations because they can't get back to the continent via, say, Northwest Europe anytime soon. They don't have the mass. They don't have the ability to do it on their own. Uh, but the Mediterranean, they can fight on the periphery, back to this kind of peripheral strategy. So they can fight in the air and in the sea uh, in the Mediterranean. They fight on land in, in North Africa, these sorts of things. So I'd, I'd suggest that the Green campaign is more a distraction from that than the end of it being a, A spark for it to increase it's more that just that has stopped and therefore the focus on it is not required
0: how important overall was the signals intelligence the ultra machine to the british anti-shipping campaign
1: yeah it's an interesting question because i'd suggest very important but within the context of intelligence as a whole it's very important um and so uh, i think Sometimes when people think about intelligence in the Second World War and particularly intelligence in the Mediterranean say, they tend to focus on signals and intelligence and within that signals intelligence specifically on ultra. And that's one component of a much broader picture. There are other things that link in signals intelligence, of course, beyond just ultra. But also there are there are really important other forms of intelligence, human intelligence um, coming from human sources, um aerial reconnaissance, uh, open source intelligence, even lots and lots of different things. So to trying to pass specifically how much signals intelligence is important to that within all of that can sometimes be difficult. There are some who've tried it. Um, uh, the the late Italian historian, Alberto Santoni, for instance, has, has tried to do that to, to some extent in an important sort of older Italian language book. Um, or the translation of the title is, is uh, The Real Traitor, and it's about, it's about Ultra. Um, but I'd suggest really it's, it's an important element within all of these things. Frequently, they're working in conjunction. So Ultra, particularly after breaking key uh, access codes in, in 1941 relating to the Mediterranean, becomes very important. But when it is used, it's generally used in conjunction with these other things. And sometimes those other things are used more in isolation. Uh, So often um, in terms of shipping campaign, Ultra or other forms of signals intelligence can give you sailing schedules when something's set to leave, when it's hoped to arrive, what the route is. And that's fantastic. Fantastic resource after they break key codes. Fantastic thing for, for Britain to have. The allies to have and, and to look to interdict that shipping. The problem is sometimes schedules slip, sometimes uh, maybe something isn't ready, or maybe there's a problem, mechanical problem with the ship. Maybe they choose to change the route because they think, oh, we're, we're taking a lot of losses on this route, we'll alter it slightly. Maybe they have to turn back at sea, what have you. So you need to verify it with other sources. You to get, get information from human sources, use your aerial reconnaissance, these sorts of things. So they they get increasingly good over time at using all-source intelligence, and that really is vital towards uh, the success of the anti-shipping campaign. So it's it's one thing within a broader picture, but yes, important, very important.
0: Is not the logic behind the supposition in the book that the anti-shipping campaign was the key variable in the success of Operation Crusader somewhat, um, for lack of better expression, Post AUK ergo propter AUK?
1: Yeah, so I mean, Crusader itself, of course, is is one element of the broader war in North Africa. I mean, you can argue really that um, it kind of doesn't achieve a huge amount for either side. I mean, initially it seems to achieve the, the British Commonwealth aims in that it um, uh, kicks the Axis forces out of Cyrenaica in eastern Libya, but then, of course, Shortly after the culmination of the operation, suddenly the the Axis forces are able to to retake all of those areas later in 1942. So, you know, perhaps it's um, uh, kind of um, in that sense, it's better viewed within the broader uh, kind of um, perspective of the war in North Africa. But in terms of it specifically impacting Crusader, um, I think that's one thing we, we certainly can draw. Uh, conclusions to say that it did have a vital impact. Now, that's not to say that it, you know, everyone involved with the planning of the operation is expecting that it hinges on the success of anti-shipping operations. But we do know um, that there are real problems with uh, lack of supplies to the Axis forces in this period, and particularly of fuel. We do know that uh, And can prove, and that, as it shows the stats in the book, there are heavy losses in the run up to Crusader of these things. And then particularly in the crucial month of November 1941, extremely heavy losses. Ninety two percent of the fuel ship does not arrive in the month of November 1941. Now, those who've argued against the idea that that was important in this period basically say, well, it doesn't matter anyway, because maybe a lot of that was going to Tripoli which is much further west, and then you can't really get it across Libya very easily. And actually, what matters more is maybe things like the size of the receiving ports. They can never get across enough in the first place. Um, But I'm able to sort of, in the book, I think, refute a lot of these ideas. So um, it's very clear, for instance, that the losses to routes further east, like, say, uh, to Benghazi, are very, very heavy in this period. So when they're trying to send it to the further forward ports, they take heavy losses specifically. Um, And also that actually during this period, the overall quantity of certain types of key fuels uh, are are falling in North Africa in general, not just in Cyrenaica but also in Tripolitania right at the time uh, and in the aftermath of such high quantities of these things being sunk. Um, in terms of how aware, say, Um, the British and Commonwealth Army is on the ground of these things happening and seeing how important they are, probably not really thinking about it a huge amount at the time. So in that sense, it is certainly a retrospective view of things. But then really, that's something that, that, you know, uh, those conducting the anti-shipping Campaign are aware of. And it's something that, as I go into in the book, using the Axis source material, it's something the Axis forces are aware of as well. Um, so yes, certainly is is kind of retrospective, and it's it's not to say that um, there aren't important things done on the ground in North Africa, um, but it, it has a clear, and, for me, clear and demonstrable, very important impact.
0: I had a similar question in reference to Rommel's uh, failure at El Alamein. Would it be correct to say that you give a higher uh, importance variable-wise in terms of Rommel's failure? Uh, to the anti-shipping campaign as opposed to those like, I'm thinking in particular, Dr. Jonathan Fennell, who attribute um, uh, Ramos' failure to the improvement in British morale and training in the period uh, leading up to the final battle in late October, early November 1942.
1: Yeah, so I mean, well, broadly, I'd, I suggest that, as, as I argue in the book, it's again an extremely important factor uh, and probably the key factor uh, regarding specifically um, uh, the Battles of Alamein um, and particularly that period around kind of um, sort of November 1942, October November 1942. Um, uh, I, re- I mean, I reference in the book other kind of important works that argue um, different different factors, so someone like um, uh, Jonathan Fennell on morale, for instance, um, others who've uh, talked about importance of supply over land, uh, like Bruce Gladman, um, those who've talked about some sort of leadership failures, uh, perhaps, on the on the axis side in this period, uh, or those who've suggested that um, particularly one sort of common argument is that it, it doesn't matter, it was never possible, regardless of what happens at Alamein, for the Axis forces to then successfully even advance from there and, and get across to say uh, Cairo, Alexandria, or across Suez, or any of these kind of things. Um, on that last point, I try and I try and actively make the point well, that's not how it's viewed at the British by the British at the time. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of famously ideas when when um, for first Alamein. Uh, like digs in there and sort of says, you know, we'll, we'll stay here alive. We'll, we'll hold here alive or we'll stay here dead because this is the last point of defence for us. Um, you know, famously, there's, there's the flap uh, in Cairo and Ash Wednesday and the burning of all the documents there and attempts to, you know, organise things ready for evacuation. Um, the uh, Royal Navy evacuates Alexandria, goes to elsewhere in the Middle East. Um, so they really clearly think it's a, a, a possibility. Uh, and that perception is very, very important because, of course, if if it's a sort of a capitulation they would draw from that area, then it, it doesn't, all those other arguments don't matter. Um, so uh, in that sense, uh, it is very much a possibility. And we can look at and I break down the figures about the specific things that are being um, being sunk in this period and also where they're getting lost a lot of the time. Um, those who've argued say that. Um, uh, you know, a lot of it's going to Tripoli and uh, therefore doesn't it matter more if we're talking about supplies, what gets what gets interdicted over land? Well, actually, again, sort of to point out that the um, the, the, the the forward routes to places like Benghazi or Tobruk that are closer to the front lines are really effectively interdicted by, by the uh, by the Allied forces. Um, and also. What comes into Tripoli is still important because the lack of kind of land vehicles to transport things across that, that the others like so Bruce Gladman have pointed to well that comes across by sea those vehicles come across by sea fact most importantly uh, those kind of spares and, and fuel for them to keep them running they're all crucial those come by sea as well um, and those things are, are effectively interdicted as part of the overall attrition to shipping so they don't have the, the right amounts of stuff getting across, and increasingly by this period, they don't have enough shipping to successfully service North Africa and the requirements there alongside everything else uh, in the Mediterranean. Um, so my argument is this is an absolutely a sort of crucial part of undermining um, their position in, in North Africa, um, and sort of to reiterate this point that those that suggest there was, there was kind of never a chance for the Axis forces. It's always important to remember that at the time that's very it's very much viewed that that this is a bit of a last stand, certainly a first Alamein, uh, but even as we get to to, to the ultimate battle with Alamein, um, this is very much viewed as a kind of a last stand in, in North Africa by people in Egypt.
0: Overall, would it be true to say that for you, the lack of supplies available to the Axis forces was the key variable? In the eventual Allied victory in the Mediterranean Theatre.
1: Yeah, and that's the fundamental argument in the book that um, that it's absolutely crucial towards Allied victory in the Mediterranean. Um, that effectively over kind of forty-one to forty-three, it's absolutely essential in not only contributing to Allied victory in North Africa, and undermining the Axis position there. And preventing any kind of evacuation um, from Tunisia by simply having denuded the shipping available to even attempt such a thing in the first place, regardless of how you think it might have gone. Um, but also forcing the collapse of the position more broadly, forcing them sort of removing their ability to use kind of air bases in places like Crete uh, or or Sardinia that had been very important to the overall position, uh, forcing the ultimate withdrawal from the Aegean Really, ultimately, by the time you get to sort of mid to late 1944, the the Mediterranean position of the Axis powers, such as it is, is just um, their kind of soon to be removed positions in, in southern France, and then what they hold on to in the northern northern Italy, uh, the northern territories of Italy, the north of the peninsula. Um, and really, once you get to that point, I stopped the book at the end of 1944, there is still conflict in the Mediterranean broadly. So sort of defined in the sense that it's still ongoing in Italy um, and certain sort of uh, other areas. Um, and by the time you get to that stage, there is no way that shipping can impact on it um, because it's it's effectively become a land war that shipping is no longer required for. But that's because they've been forced back to those that kind of uh, position and that has been uh, enabled by and their position has been undermined by this anti-shipping campaign.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a, a really interesting one. I guess, um, obviously, the main conclusion of the book about this idea of shipping and the importance of the interdiction of actually shipping in the Mediterranean. Um, but really, maybe the importance then, as a broader conclusion, the importance of shipping to the war as a whole. Um, because this has been covered, say, the importance of shipping to the Allied war efforts um, in, say, uh, sort of from the American perspective in the Pacific uh, or uh, from the kind of Anglo-American perspective, uh, looking at particularly the Battle of the Atlantic and the need to keep Britain in the war by getting this shipping across the Atlantic and then also later then laying the platform for the invasion of Northwest Europe Or even to some extent, much less so. But to some extent, for the Soviet Union, with things like the Arctic convoys um, and the supplies to them, Um, it's been looked at from that perspective. But the importance of um, shipping and the the, the kind of the undermining of their ability to have sort of a new shipping to the Axis war efforts, I think, has been underplayed. Uh, That is that is being redressed by several things. Hopefully, people think that this book is one of the things redressing that. With specific relation to the Mediterranean, but others who are, are addressing it elsewhere. I mean, there has been earlier work, particularly on shipping in the in the Pacific and the kind of the the ultimate sort of strangulation of Japan um, by the the introduction of their relatively small merchant marine, um, and a little bit on things like um, the North Sea and kind of Bay of Biscay and the the, the shipping that that, that takes um, uh, kind of um, uh, key things like uh, iron ore down from Scandinavia to Germany, but also that this plays a, a key part in the overall sort of position of the axis to to, to act in the war. Um, it's ultimately the case that the Grand Alliance, particularly, you know, if you include uh, China as well, are a, a very much a global coalition. And that global coalition is able to act globally. And one of the main reasons it's able to do so, particularly for Britain and the United States, is the fact that they have access to the seas and the necessary maritime resources to, to, to utilise it for their benefit, either to defend their own necessary sea communications or to act more aggressively and things like amphibious landings around the world and these sorts of things. Um, whereas the, the Axis Coalition is much more atomised uh, with powers not acting in, in coalition as, as effectively and they don't have that ability to act kind of globally and the interdiction of, of their various shipping resources is, is an important part of that and the, the disparity between the two sides of the war.
0: On that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Hammond, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Hammond. Thank you very much.